One of the most significant pieces of evidence pointing towards the setup of Lee Harvey Oswald was the discovery of a second Oswald wallet at the Tippett murder scene. FBI Special Agent Bob Barrett and Dallas Police Captain Westbrook arrived shortly after Tippett was killed. Westbrook called Barrett over, quote, he had this wallet in his hands, end quote, Barrett recalled years later. Westbrook asked me, do you know who Lee Harvey Oswald is? And do you know who Alex J. Hydell is? And I said, no, I've never heard of them, end quote. An Oswald wallet at the Tippett murder scene is hard to believe because Oswald had his wallet on him when he was arrested at the Texas Theater. However, decades later, news footage from a local Dallas television station was discovered which showed Dallas Police Sergeant Calvin Owens holding a man's leather wallet as he stood next to Dallas Police Captain George Doherty. Owens had the wallet open as Doherty examined an item from the wallet in a plastic sleeve as a plainclothes officer, most likely Westbrook, joined them. We know the wallet was not Tippett's because it was removed from his pocket at Methodist Hospital after his death. When shown this wallet at the police station later that day, Oswald said he didn't know whose wallet that was, but it wasn't his. So whose wallet was it? And come on, who would leave their wallet at a murder scene, especially when there wasn't even a scuffle between Tippett and his killer? It's most likely the wallet was planted there to frame Oswald. Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. This is just in from Dallas, Homicide Chief Captain Will Fritz of today, the assassination case against Lee Harvey Oswald is cinched. He said flatly, this is the man that killed President Kennedy. 24-year-old Lee Harvey Oswald. Come on, President. No, they're taking me in because of the fact that I live in Philly. I'm just a passing. I'm just a passing. Shot. Shot. Lee Oswald has been shot. There's a man with a gun. Welcome to the End of Innocence. I'm your host, John Young. When Lee Harvey Oswald was arrested, he had two sets of ID. One identified him as Lee Harvey Oswald. The other identified him as Alex James Hydell. As an employee of the book depository, there had been some confusion about his address and his name. According to their paperwork, it was the same guy with two different names and two different addresses. According to military records, there was a cross-reference between Lee Harvey Oswald and Alex James Hydell. At the police station, they were not sure who they had. They were confused and they didn't know if they had Oswald or Hydell. The police did not know who they had, but J. Edgar Hoover already knew who they had. He should know since he was director of the FBI, but how could he have known before the police knew? He must have known about the assassination in advance. How could Hoover already know the story before the police? 
Many researchers for years thought that Alex James Heidel was Lee Harvey Oswald's intelligence name. Pictures of Oswald and Heidel look similar on passports and other forms of ID. Some people have speculated that a composite version of the two people were used to create official images. Others say this was just one person with two identities. Oswald's mother always claimed Lee Harvey Oswald worked for the government. People in intelligence said that he worked for the government. The government wrote checks to him and he was often seen with government agents. Whatever he did or did not do, it seems Oswald worked for the government in at least some capacity. Oswald was found with cameras that had serial numbers that directly linked to the government. How could Oswald have these cameras unless he was working for the government? The FBI claimed that the cameras were light meters. They went as far as changing official reports to reflect the wrong information. The government claimed they knew nothing about Oswald, even though they gave him money to come back from Japan in 1958. Apparently, he had contacted an STD while in Japan. Typically, a Marine would face punishments for such things, but no punishment was given to Oswald. Three years before the assassination, J. Edgar Hoover sent a memo to the State Department claiming that an imposter was using Oswald's ID. They thought he was going to give away state secrets, but could this have been Heidel instead? In pictures, we can see what looks like split-face composites that are presented as being Oswald. Some believe these split-face composites are half Oswald and half Heidel. These two may have been moving around the world as secret agents posing as one another to create confusion. If this is true, it may be impossible to figure out what exactly happened. The Oswald from Dallas does not match the Oswald from the Marines. According to the autopsy, Oswald was 5 feet 11 inches tall, but the Marine account of Oswald put him at only 5 feet 9 inches. The Marine version of Oswald was a full 2 inches shorter than the Oswald accused of and murdered for the assassination of John F. Kennedy. How can we have such a discrepancy? Was this the same person, or were there two different people? Lee Harvey Oswald's own mother does not know for sure who is buried in her son's grave. The funeral director was also confused about who was actually in the casket, labeled Lee Harvey Oswald. It seems unlikely that we will ever know the full truth about any of this. According to the official story, the JFK murder weapon can be tracked back to Lee Harvey Oswald because the serial number of the Carcano rifle, supposedly found on the 6th floor, C2766, matches the serial number of a rifle that was shipped to a P.O. box owned by Oswald. Something that has never made sense to me is why Oswald would order a traceable weapon to a post office box when he could go into any store in Texas, give a phony name, and walk out with a rifle that could never be traced. It doesn't add up, does it? When he was arrested, Oswald had a Ford Selective Service card in his wallet with the name Alex J. Heidel and a photo of Oswald's face. Oswald's response when asked about the Heidel card was, quote, Now I've told you all I'm going to tell you about that card in my billfold. You have the card yourself and you know as much about it as I do, end quote. Oswald did admit during the police interrogations that he rented the P.O. box, but he denied receiving a package addressed to Heidel. He also specifically denied receiving the rifle. Oswald did not admit that he rented the P.O. box under Heidel's name. His admission was that he owned the P.O. box where the rifle was allegedly sent. So did Oswald actually order and receive the rifle at that P.O. box? Klein Sporting Goods of Chicago, the company the Warren Report says shipped the rifle to the Oswald P.O. box, kept microfilm records showing that they received an order for a Mamaco Carcano on March 13, 1963. The order was from a coupon in a February 1963 magazine. It was signed by A. Heidel. 
According to FBI experts who examined the handwriting of Oswald's passport and his other known writings, the A. Hydell signature was consistent with Oswald's. So it seems the FBI connected Oswald's handwriting to the order of a rifle that matched the serial number for the rifle supposedly found on the sixth floor. Just for the record, I still think the rifle found was a Mauser and not a Carcano. So Oswald admitted owning the P.O. box where the rifle was shipped to a name that was on a selective service card in Oswald's wallet with Oswald's photo. But there are also some counterpoints to consider when it comes to Oswald's alleged rifle ownership. There are all sorts of issues with the documents backing up Oswald's rifle order. The coupon that appears in the Warren report, which is supposed to be from the same coupon that Oswald used to order the rifle, is from a November 1963 magazine ad, not a February 1963 ad, like the Warren report says. This really wouldn't matter except that the February ad shows a 36-inch rifle, whereas the November ad, the one that actually appeared in the Warren report, showed a 40-inch rifle, the same size as the Calcano that the Warren Commission says was found on the sixth floor. The report says the rifle was ordered in March of 1963, so we know the November ad can't be the one Oswald used. Warren report defenders say that the obvious explanation for the discrepancy is that Kleins ran out of the 36-inch rifles and must have just sent Oswald a 40-inch rifle instead. But this appears to be pure speculation on their part. We don't actually know if Kleins had a policy of sending customers the closest available gun size if the one they ordered wasn't in stock. The next item Warren Report critics point out is a timing issue with Oswald's money order. Oswald supposedly mailed the money order and the coupon for the rifle to Kleins from Dallas on March 12, 1963. It arrived in Chicago on March 13, 1963 and was also deposited by Kleins that day. I'm no expert on the speed of the postal service in 1963, but even today it takes three to five days for regular mail to arrive. It's also surprising that a money order sent via regular mail would arrive basically overnight from 700 miles away and be received by clients early enough in the day to have time to make that deposit before the bank closed. When the envelope with the coupon and the money order arrived at clients, the company microfilmed the envelope and the coupon, but they did not microfilm the money order for $21.45. The FBI searched the money order for fingerprints and did not find any prints of Lee Harvey Oswald. The bank slip received by clients at the time of the deposit is dated February 15th, but that would be a month before Oswald allegedly sent the money order on March 13th, and that would totally be inconsistent with the other documents. The FBI looked into this issue. They couldn't prove which specific deposit from clients contained Oswald's money order. Finally, there is proof that an FBI informant identified as T2 was reading all of Lee Harvey Oswald's outgoing mail for over six to eight months leading up to the assassination. Keep in mind, after the killing of Kennedy, they tried to sell the public on the fact that Lee Harvey Oswald was just a lone nut and the government had never heard of him. Yeah, right. So if the FBI was monitoring Oswald's incoming mail, were they doing it in March of 63 when the Warren report says the rifle arrived to Oswald's P.O. box? The answer is yes, they were. The Warren report never asked the FBI whether it was monitoring Oswald's mail. So ultimately, we are left with more questions than answers about the supposed Oswald rifle. Another challenge to the Warren Report's claim that Oswald received the rifle via a P.O. box under the alias Alex J. Hydell is that paperwork requirements for shipping guns in 1963 were not followed. A Form 2162 was required for shipping firearms. There is no Form 2162 in evidence from either Oswald or Kleins. One would think that a Form 2162 would be all the more important given that the P.O. box was in the name of Lee Harvey Oswald and the rifle was allegedly shipped to Alex J. Hydell. Alex Hydell wasn't the name on the P.O. box, so why would the shipment not have been returned to sender? 
there were no witnesses at the Dallas Post Office who remembered handling the rifle shipped to Heidel. Even after all of that evidence against Oswald, I have doubts that he actually placed the order for the rifle. We know FBI informants were reading Oswald's mail as early as March 1963. This shows that the FBI or its informant could have received the weapon and intervened without Oswald ever knowing about it. It's hard for me to believe the FBI just read one piece of Oswald's outgoing mail in March 1963, but had no idea about Oswald's incoming mail to the same P.O. box. Now that we're done going down that rabbit hole, let's pick back up Lee Oswald's trail at the Dallas Police Department. Police lineup is a process by which a crime victim or witness identification of a suspect is confirmed to a level that can count as evidence at trial. The suspect, along with several other individuals of similar height, complexion, and build, stand both facing and in profile. This is sometimes done in a special room which includes details like a height measurement grade on the wall to aid identifying the person's height. The person making the identification views from behind a one-way mirror or similar protection to guarantee the suspect identified by the witness cannot know the identity of the witness. Fillers are used in the lineup so the lineup is fair. For evidence from a lineup to be admissible in court, the lineup itself must be conducted fairly. The police may not say or do anything that persuades the witness to identify the suspect that they prefer. This includes loading the lineup with people who look very dissimilar to the suspect. Let's take a look at the lineups that weekend in Dallas while Lee Harvey Oswald was in custody. The three other participants in the first two lineups were Dallas police employees. William Perry and Richard Clark were detectives in the Vice Division and Don Abels was a clerk in the jail. Detective L.C. Graves told the Warren Commission that the way fillers were selected for lineups was that the Homicide Division would call down to the jail office, tell them which prisoner they wanted to show, and ask them to provide two, three, or four other prisoners who were the approximate age and size as the prisoner they were showing. But this is not the way that the fillers were selected for the first two lineups in this case. William Perry testified that Captain Fritz called the Vice Unit, not the jail, and requested two officers. Perry's partner Clark confirmed it was Fritz who made the request. Detective Jim Lavelle testified that the Dallas police didn't normally use police officers in lineups. Fritz testified that he quote, barred those officers, end quote, because he feared other prisoners would harm Oswald, and that quote, we didn't have an officer in my office the right size to show with him, so I asked two of the special service officers if they would help me, end quote. Less than four hours later, however, at the 7.55 p.m. lineup, Oswald was handcuffed to two other prisoners. In Saturday's lineup, all of the fillers were prisoners. So much for Fritz's fear of Oswald's safety. Jim Lavelle states, quote, I know in all cases we usually try and have them dressed as alike as possible. Captain Fritz testified that the three police fillers took off their coats and neckties and fixed themselves where they would look like prisoners and were not dressed any better than Oswald. But in pictures that day of the lineups, you can see that the other men were dressed in sports coats and ties and one in a button-up checkered shirt. When questioned by the Warren Commission, filler William Perry testified that he put on a brown sports coat for both lineups. Filler R.L. Clark testified that he was wearing a white short sleeve shirt and a dark sports coat for both lineups. He also testified that he got the dark sports coat and Perry got the brown sports coat from the homicide office. Don Abels testified that he was wearing a white, button-down, short-sleeve shirt with checkers for both lineups. Detective Elmer Boyd admitted under oath that the three police employees were dressed way better than Oswald. 
as Oswald was wearing a white, blood-stained, stretched-out white t-shirt in both lineups. Captain Fritz lied to the Warren Commission when he testified that the police officers, quote, fixed themselves where they would look like prisoners, end quote. Prisoners don't wear sports coats. And it's not a mistake that Fritz could have made unintentionally because Fritz testified that he was present at the first lineup for Helen Markham and Detective Clark testified that those items of clothing were taken from the Dallas Homicide Office. Dallas Detective Elsie Graves states, quote, Let me say this, that it would be very unusual and unlikely if we had a lineup and if they put anything other than men that fit their approximate size, weight, and age in there with them because we just don't operate that way. But in this instance, things were done totally different, and I don't know why, end quote. In his testimony, cab driver William Calloway quoted what Detective Lavelle told himself, Ginyard, and McWaters before they viewed lineup number two. Mr. Calloway states, quote, We first went into the room. There was Jim Lavelle, the detective, Sam Ginyard, and then the bus driver and myself. Jim told us, When I show you these guys, be sure, take your time, see if you can make a positive identification. We want to be sure. We want to try to wrap him up real tight on killing this officer. We think he is the same one that shot the president. But if we can wrap him up tight on killing this officer, we have got him for both murders, end quote. As if having one blonde in the first two lineups was not enough, the Dallas police put two blondes in the lineup with Oswald and Abel's for lineup number three. In this lineup, the witnesses, Barbara and Virginia Davis, described the man they saw running across their lawn as a white male, slender, light complexion, with either light brown or black hair. But both fillers, Richard Bolchard and Ellis Brazell, had blonde hair and a ruddy complexion. In his testimony, taxicab driver William Scoggins described the murders of Tippett as a white male, light complexion, 25 to 26, medium height and weight, with either medium brown or dark hair. But lineup number four filler, John Thurman Horn, was 17, and filler David Knapp was 18. The final filler for the fourth lineup was Daniel Lujan, a 26-year-old Mexican who was on the heavy side at 5'8", 170 pounds. The testimony from the hearings indicate that the Dallas police had a procedure for the selection of fillers in their lineups. The testimony also shows that the police deviated from the procedure for the first two lineups because there was no one, quote, the right size, end quote, to show with Oswald. Police then solved this dilemma by putting fillers in the lineups who not only weren't even close to the description given by the witnesses, they didn't even come close to resembling Oswald. They put guys in there who were dark-skinned, heavier, had the wrong hair color, the wrong complexion, younger and older than the witnesses' description of the killer or the suspect Oswald. They put teenagers, bonds, and even a minority in the last lineup. The purpose for such selection of fillers was to ensure that Oswald was the only one who even came close to the description of the killer, and thus making him the only choice possible. Listen to what longtime JFK assassination researcher Larry Harris says about the police lineups that weekend in Dallas. In the first two lineups, Oswald appeared with two police detectives and a jail clerk. These men were wearing clothing quite a bit nicer than Oswald, but moreover, they did not resemble Oswald in appearance. They were heavier, older. One of them had blonde hair. The police were gave fictitious names and occupations. Oswald gave his real name, his real occupation, to Texas School Book Depository. This information was being widely disseminated even by the time of the first lineup. In the second and third lineups, Oswald appeared with men who were quite a bit heavier, older, some of them had blonde hair, 
And in the fourth lineup, which was the most outrageous of all, Oswald appeared in the lineup with two teenagers and a Mexican. And in the second, third, and fourth lineups, Oswald complained bitterly to police about the manner in which the lineups were being conducted. And he berated the police, demanded legal representation, and it was very, very apparent to any witnesses that Oswald was the suspect. There are established criteria for the fair and proper conduct of police lineups. By any stretch of the imagination, every rule in the book was violated by the Dallas police in the conduct of each of the four lineups that weekend. In March 1963, eight months before the assassination, FBI agent James Hostie was ordered to keep Lee Harvey Oswald under observation. Soon afterwards, Hostie received a message from the FBI's Washington office that Oswald was subscribing to the Daily Worker, the newspaper of the American Communist Party. In June, Hostie heard from the FBI headquarters that Oswald was in New Orleans and requested information on him. On November 1, 1963, Hostie visited the home of Ruth Payne to discover where Oswald was living. He spoke to both Payne and Marina Oswald. When Lee Oswald heard about this visit, he went to the FBI office in Dallas. When told that Hostie was at lunch, Oswald left him a message in an envelope. The contents of the envelope has remained a mystery. Hostie later claimed it said, quote, If you have anything you want to learn about me, come talk to me directly. If you don't cease bothering my wife, I will take appropriate action and report this to the proper authorities." End quote. Soon after Lee Harvey Oswald was arrested for the assassination of President Kennedy, Hostie was called into the office of his superior, Gordon Shanklin. Hostie was asked about what he knew about Oswald. When Oswald was shot dead by Jack Ruby two days later, Shanklin ordered Hostie to destroy Oswald's letter. Hostie, after returning to his office, followed his orders and destroyed the note given to him by Oswald, flushing the remains of it down the toilet. An early arrival at police headquarters was the FBI agent in Dallas who had been assigned to keep an eye on Oswald prior to the assassination, James Hostie. His behavior when I talked to him on the afternoon of the assassination for approximately one hour was that of a person who was very calm, cool, and collected. He claimed that he was uh, in the lunchroom at the time of the assassination by himself. Uh, he was also asked by Captain Fritz that he bring a weapon into the building that day, and he said no, he had not. But he had seen the uh, manager, uh, Mr. Truly, had brought a rifle into the building uh, a day or two before. Uh, this was later checked out and proved to be true that Mr. Truly had brought a rifle in, and he was going to go deer hunting with it and shown it to several of the people in the building. When they first filed against Oswald for killing President Kennedy, they put in the uh, complaint that Oswald did kill President Kennedy in the furtherance of an international communist conspiracy. The White House called down to the district attorney and vehemently objected to that, in which then the district attorney removed this statement from the original complaint. Because of this, the White House was extremely upset with the local authorities, and we were under the strictest orders not to give them any information whatsoever at all about Oswald. This caused them to jump to the wrong conclusion and think that we were hiding something about ourselves when we were really cloaking the information about Oswald's uh, Soviet and Cuban connections. 
In Mexico City, two months before the assassination, a man claiming to be Oswald had visited both the Soviet and Cuban embassies, demanding a visa allowing him to travel to Russia via Cuba. He was unsuccessful. The American authorities were aware of his trip. I asked him if he'd ever been to Mexico City, and he became quite upset about that. But this was more, he was more startled. Uh, and he said something to the effect, how did you know about that? And then, then, uh, then wouldn't speak about it anymore. Whether it was Oswald or an imposter in Mexico City, it was a connection that the American authorities were anxious to conceal at all costs. James Hostie gives the official explanation for this cover-up. Oswald had been in contact with V.V. Kostikov, who was the Soviet KGB chief of assassinations and sabotage for the Western Hemisphere. I think the fact that Oswald had been in contact shortly before the assassination with a person of that nature, and due to the fact that he had spent three years in Russia, this would have caused the American public to become so outraged that it could have led to World War III. I believe for this reason, they decided that they would keep this from the American public. Whatever the real mission was in Mexico City, the American authorities at the highest level were determined that it should never be revealed. In Mexico City, the CIA agents were instructed to cease and desist their investigation of a possible Castro connection to Oswald's uh, assassinating of President Kennedy. In the holding cells of police headquarters in downtown Dallas, time was running out for Oswald. Throughout the relentless interrogations, he had offered no information other than vehemently protesting his innocence of the murders of both the president and Officer Tippett. 24 hours after his arrest, he was still without legal representation. For the rest of that day, and most of the following morning, Oswald's time was filled with more unrecorded interviews with police officials. Next week on The End of Innocence, the JFK Assassination, we will continue to look at the last few hours of Lee Oswald's life. We will also take a deep dive into the famous backyard photographs. Were they legit or were they fakes? We'll see you next week.